Asia Pacific Currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock on Community Radio 3CR. All groups of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents on this Saturday, the 27th of June. Jesus, the year has flown, Pierre. That's correct. My name is Pierre Morrow, and uh, welcome, Giselle, for another uh, fantastic program, Asia Pacific Current. That's right, half of the year uh, out, and unfortunately, as we'll hear in the stories and in the interview for this week, um, things just seems to be getting uh, worse for our class. But uh, before we get to Giselle, those numbers as usual. That's right. If the Well, Asia Pacific Currents is brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on the web or the w's.aawl.org.au. We are on Facebook and Twitter. So look us up on those social media platforms and continue to follow news and current affairs from around the Asia Pacific region. I also want to say, Pierre, we are still broadcasting from the warmth and comfort of our homes because 3CR is still, um, well, slowly opening up from lockdown, but not all of us are broadcasting live from the station. So we're recording this on Friday, the 26th of June. Uh, a couple of things I want to say before we run into the news from around the region. Um, one is obviously amidst the new outbreak in Victoria, in Melbourne, it's not clear when we will all return to the beautiful studios of 3CR in Collingwood, but the station still does desperately need your financial support. We do know that everybody is doing it tough, but we have now officially launched our fundraising drive for 2020. Uh, and we, again, we know everybody's doing it tough, but whatever you can spare, towards what would normally be our Radiothon, we would very, very muchly appreciate and put to very good use. That's right. That's right. Um, certainly share those sentiments. And uh, before we get to the news stories, just to say there were, there were interview uh, uh, that you'll hear in the second half of this program is from the Philippines. And it's actually with Maria Ressa, who we, ac we actually had her on about eight 18 months ago. She's the CEO and a long-time investigative journal of the online uh, news media platform Repla in the Philippines. And she's been targeted um, for years by the Duterte government. And we'll certainly hear the, her latest um, problems with the, with the law and uh, more generally the situation for journalists in the Philippines, which is... Um, quite um, terrible. But um, Giselle, um, you might as well start with the news stories. That's right. So we will actually kick off in the Philippines where uh, Filipinos are being repatriated from Saudi Arabia, dead or alive. This week, the Filipino government announced that it will increase its repatriation of Filipino workers from Saudi Arabia. Three, this week, three chartered planes were, will be dispatched they will also bring back the bodies of 350 Filipino workers, 100 of whom have died because of COVID-19, while the rest have died of supposedly natural causes. 
There are hundreds of thousands of Filipino workers in the kingdom and there is a waiting list of approximately 25,000 workers who are waiting to be repatriated. Their wait will be made longer due to the Philippines government's recent decision to slow down repatriations due to its inability to care for them once back in the Philippines. Of course, that story just highlights um, the tragedy and devastation of a global situation where the Philippines' biggest export is human labour. And when you commodify labour to that degree, that's what happens. Uh, yes, quite a, a shocking story. And we now go to India, where in many ways another shocking story. We've brought you lots of uh, news from India recently. But at the end of May, Ashok Leyland, the country's second largest commercial vehicle manufacturing company, terminated close to 6,000 of its workers on the spot. These workers represented about 85% of the workforce of the Ashok Leyland uh, Pant Nagar plant in uh, Uttarakhand. Around 4,500 of the workers had a permanent contract, while around 1,300 were temporary workers. Now, unfortunately, in the last two months, the sacking of workers has become commonplace in India, especially since the Modi government amended labour laws weakening workplace regulations. Economists now estimate that the economic impact of the COVID-19 shutdown in India could be much greater than anticipated with possibly hundreds of millions of workers becoming unemployed in India. That's a shocking statistic. And in Bangladesh, garment workers are facing massive hardship. The current economic crisis has meant that over $3.5 billion worth of international orders have been lost for the garment industry of Bangladesh. So far, it's estimated that a million garment workers have already lost their job, with another half a million at risk of losing their jobs in the coming weeks. In addition, garment workers that are still working now report that wage theft has become even more of a problem, throwing more workers into destitution. To make matters worse, due to the grinding working conditions and starvation wages, garment workers are at greater risk of getting seriously sick or dying from COVID-19 because of underlying health vulnerabilities and cramped working conditions that make any physical distancing impossible. Again, it really shows that uh, it's workers that uh, are paying the price for this uh, pandemic. And we now go to nearby to Myanmar, where under the guise of economic hardship due to um, this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, two garment factories have fired hundreds of newly unionised workers. At the first factory, known as Wabo Times, management sacked over 100 workers, primarily union members and supporters, just days after they had filed registration for a new union. The company then replaced these workers within days with 200 non-union workers transferred from a different factory. At the second factory called Ruining, workers had managed to register a new union in February of this year. But within two months, management had fired close to 300 of the newly registered union members. And we've got to remember that conditions at garment factors, garment factories in Myanmar are very tough, with regular shifts usually consisting of 10-hour workdays, six days a week, often in crowded and, and unsanitary conditions. Workers are then expected to regularly work overtime in order to make enough money to survive. 
average wages for workers are around $3 a day. Yeah, as we go through the coming weeks and months, uh, we're just going to hear more and more of these stories um, as people try to survive the economic crash, effectively the depression. But we're going to move now to Iran, where the sugar workers take action again. On the 15th of June, thousands of workers employed at the Haftapé Sugarcane Company went out on strike. The workers at this conglomerate have had an incredible history of militancy over the last decade and have had to survive repeated rounds of sackings, repression and arrests. During their rallies in the last 10 days, the workers have reiterated how their solidarity as a class transcends any ethnic divides that are being used to break up the unity of the strike movement. Their demands are pay unpaid wages and renew insurance booklets, reinstate all sacked workers, arrest Azad Baigi, who is the CEO, and uh, sentence Azad Baigi and Rostami. Rostami is the chairman of the board, so sentence them to life in prison. Get rid of the fraudster employment and the private sector and return all embezzled wealth to the workers. Actually quite progressive, I would hazard to say almost revolutionary demands there. They're, they're quite astonishing, these these workers, um, and all, all power to them. And to our last um, uh, news item, unfortunately, it's another one uh, that shows uh, what's happening to workers, and it's here in Australia. Um, just over three months ago, the aviation company Virgin Australia announced that it was going to stand down 8,000 workers due to COVID-19 shutdowns. This represented 80% of its workforce. This week, the remaining and bigger aviation company in Australia, Qantas Airways, announced that it was planning to sack 6,000 workers. Now, these sackings come despite the government giving Qantas around $750 million just this year in order to save jobs. The reality is that globally, aviation companies are taking advantage of this COVID-19 economic crisis to slash the workforces and drive down conditions and wages in the sector. And I would hazard to say it's probably going to happen in all different sectors as well. Absolutely. Well, that brings us to the end of news from around the region. We're going to go to some community announcements and then we'll have our feature interview for the morning. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Hello, Florence here. I remember discovering community radio around 40 years ago, when I was still a youngster. You don't hear me on the air, at least not anymore. Lives change while we are busy making other plans. 
but one thing that's still the same is 3CR's annual call-out for financial support and donations to those of us who can afford it. If you can, please dig deep with me to ensure that 3CR stays alive and thrives, especially at these times. Go to 3cr.org.au to find out about your way of paying up. Stay safe and keep connected to your local community radio station, 3CR. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. And you're listening to Community Radio 3CR. Uh, We are recording the program from our homes with the exceptional support of 3CR's staff who are going into the station and collecting all of our um, media transfers to get this show on air. So please donate some money to 3CR's fundraising appeal this year to keep us on air. But Pierre, that feature interview. Yes, um, I managed to catch up uh, this week with Maria Ressa, who is the CEO and investigative journalist at the uh, social media company Rappler in the Philippines. And um, she's been under constant attack by the Duterte government. So and we asked her in the interview about what's happening with her and also journalists in general in the Philippines. You were just found guilty of cyber libel by the Manila Regional Trial Court. Can you explain to us what this means and also the background of this case? Well, so essentially for changing one letter in one word uh, in an article, I, and along with a former colleague, Ray Santos, can now go to jail for up to six years. It's an insane case. I've always said that that this required a lot of legal acrobatics to even get it to court. Um, The law we allegedly violated uh, wasn't even enacted when we published the story in 2012. So this is a very old story. The law we supposedly violated hadn't been enacted. And in order to be able to bring it to court, they, they came up with this novel concept called republication because in 2014, we fixed a typographical error. And then the other thing that had to happen is they needed to change the statute of limitations for libel from one year to 12 years. This will have great repercussions for not just for me and Rappler, but for all Filipinos. And that this is part of the reason we're going to fight this. You know, we are, we have 15 days. That's until the end of the month on June 30th. We will then, you know, challenge this this conviction. Um, But in the bigger picture, the context of this case is, uh, you know, this was what I was arrested for in, in February of 
of 2019, February a year ago, but it was the second case that was filed against us in 2018 uh, in a year where I had 11 cases and investigations filed against Rappler, right? And then 2019 was the year when I had eight arrest warrants, criminal charges that were that were now fighting in court in 2019 and are now, I'm still in court in many of these cases. But all of this began with exponential attacks on social media. So in 2016, this narrative of, Maria is not a journalist, she's a criminal, was seeded. It was used against many journalists. Journalists aren't, we're running after journalists because, because they're violating the laws instead of a press freedom issue. And then fast forward four years later, this conviction actually now gives some teeth to something that, a lie that was repeated exponentially on social media. Obviously, from what you've just said, you've got, I think if I heard correct, 11 other cases against you. Uh, one would uh, would get the impression that they're after you and, and Rappler, the authorities. I think it's not just after me and Rappler. I think the authorities have been very clear that they consider journalists the enemy. You know, President Duterte threatened the largest newspaper, the Philippine Daily Inquirer. They filed cases against the owners, and within a few weeks, uh, the owners said that they would sell the the newspaper to a, a friend, a businessman friend of the president. It's unclear whether that sale went through. I, I, I'm not sure it did. But the second news group under attack was uh, the largest television network, ABS-CBN. This, this network employs 11,000 people. Uh, the news group, which I ran for six years, has a thousand journalists, right? Well, just a month ago, that network was shut down. That's unheard of because the last time this happened was in 1972 when Ferdinand Marcos declared martial law and it was shut down for 14 years. And then, and then we were the third attack, me and Rappler. Uh, it was, it, it happened in President Duterte's State of the Nation address in 2017. And um, yeah, I think that the difference is that we have no other business interest to protect. We're not backed by big business in any way. And Rappler was created by journalists, run by journalists. And because you attack freedom of the press, we come out swaying. You know, thank you for doing this interview, for example, because I will call a spade a spade. And before we get on to President Duterte and the, and the current government, uh, and just looking at the situation of journalists, and like you said, the, the pressure on them is immense. You know, th- a thousand is going to become unemployed. But the reality also that a very big number of them get shot and, and killed in the Philippines. I mean, not only is this terrible, but what atmosphere does it create for you as a journalist to work in such an environment where basically there's a, a possible death sentence on, on any of you. You know, President Duterte said, told me this in, in a, our last interview that we did was in December of 2016. And I asked him, I said, you know, now that you're president and you're in charge of actually uh, upholding the Constitution, do you still need to use violence and fear? And he, he said emphatically, Yes, this is part of his leadership style. He believes that Filipinos need to be disciplined and that violence and fear are part of his part of his style. 
what is it like to work in that environment? You know, the context of this, of course, is a brutal drug war that, according to human rights groups, has killed tens of thousands. The police admit to killing at least 6,000 people, right? This was months ago. So even 6,000 people to admit that is that's a huge number. Uh, the number of people killed in the, in the martial law years was was less than half of that. That's anyway, having said that. So there's that brutal drug war. And then every, every journalist, you kind of like, you have a Damocles sword hanging over your head. It's a vindictive government. And there's a cautionary tale, right? The cautionary tale of, if you speak too much or you do too, your investigative reports are too hard, look at what happened to Rappler. Look at what's happening to Maria Ressa. So I have become a cautionary tale. But I would, I would say it's not just for journalists. Politicians have a very strong cautionary tale. Senator Lila de Lima, uh, when she was head of the Commission on Human Rights in the Philippines, she investigated Duterte for extrajudicial killings when he was Davao mayor and continued to do investigations when she entered the Senate into the drug war. Well, he certainly went after Lila de Lima. She's been in prison since February of 2017. She's been in prison for three years now, truly without a proper trial. So there's the reasons why people dock and they're very prudent to do that. And, and, you know, sometimes my family says I'm crazy, but I think the reason why we do is because there's so much at stake if we don't. Of course, when we talk about journalists investigating, we're talking about investigating things like the brutal war on, on people or with the excuse of being war on, on drugs, which is, Almost, it's very hard for people outside the Philippines to even understand the scale of it, but also the, the corruption and the nepotism that is rife in Filipino politics. And maybe has gotten worse, right, with the entry with the entrance of China because some of our stories. So, in February 2018, our palace reporter, the person who covers the equivalent of our White House, was kicked out of the palace. She wasn't allowed entry, and it was because we did a story that showed corruption in a in a deal with the Philippine Navy, and it was signed by a person who was then the aide of President Duterte. Uh, now he's a senator. He ran for and won the senator, Bongo. President Duterte, even though he pushed us out of the palace and out of any coverage where he is, we're now banned from any from doing any of that, right? We challenged this at the Supreme Court later on. But even though this happened, he then would go on later, months later, to admit that that story is correct. So yes, we're investigating corruption. We're looking at what's happening with China. We're looking at the deals that are now largely unchecked because it's difficult to get documents under a Freedom of Information Act. From what I've, I've read now, President Duterte actually wants to introduce a, a new anti-terrorism law, which I'm, I'm assuming would actually decrease your rights uh, even more. Some people are uh, constitutional experts are saying that on the face of it, this bill is unconstitutional. And what we're doing, I think, with the with the verdict in our case, as well as this anti-terror bill, is that we're codifying what were 
the ad hoc abuses of power. We're now codifying it into law. This anti-terror bill that is just now waiting for President Duterte's signature essentially allows a small group of cabinet secretaries to decide that a critic is a terrorist. And once they do that, they can arrest that person without a warrant and keep them in in prison for up to 24 days. This is, on the face of it, according to a former Supreme Court justice, unconstitutional. Now, of course, there's already a climate of impunity in the Philippines, as you mentioned, with the war on drugs. And as a, as a journalist, you obviously bring out all, all these news stories. What's the feel of the general population of the working class people of the poor people around the Philippines I mean do you think that there is a a climate of fear now in the Philippines it really depends right because if you look at the statistical surveys President Duterte's ratings are high they're in the 80 percentile plus plus Uh, but you have to take that in the context of an environment of fear. If if survey people go to your house and they know your address and they have your cell phone number, can you actually say you don't like President Duterte? Uh, and I've asked this of the survey firms, um, how do you account for fear? And they don't really have any answer for that. So that's the first. And then the second one is the kind of information operations or influence operations that is happening on social media, on Facebook in the Philippines is also unprecedented. It's, it's a behavioral modification system. And the end goal of all of this, of course, is to change behavior in the real world. Then you add to that kind of this environment where I think it's, we call it, I'm starting to call it the three C's. You know, it's an environment where you corrupt, coerce, or co-opt. And if you don't fall under these categories, you can be singled out and made a cautionary tale like I have been. It's difficult to hold power to account in this environment, right? And in many ways, I think the fact that the government wants a veneer of legality in the cases means that we can fight this out. And I just want this decline, this death by a thousand cuts of our democracy for there to be a signature every time our constitution is violated. I now have a signature on a conviction that we will challenge and we will show you in our challenge why this decision is unconstitutional. But you know, we're at the mercy of our judiciary, of our court systems. So I, I think that we're not the only ones on trial. I think our, our judiciary's on trial as well. Certainly. And as a last question, which you've sort of alluded to, so what now? Where, where to? How are we going to improve the situation in the Philippines? This is the time Filipinos are going to have to decide what kind of government do they want? What kind of system? Will we defend our democracy or will we watch it tumble into back into the days beyond? I mean, back into authoritarian one man rule. I think that's up to us now. Well, that's very prophetic words and, and very strong words, Maria. So we thank you very much. We certainly wish you all the all the best, and um, we'll certainly keep a tab on on how things are developing in the Philippines. So thank you very much again. Thank you. Thanks for doing for the yeah. podcast.
And you just heard an interview with Maria Ressa, an investigative journalist and the CEO of the Repler social media company in the Philippines. And that does bring us to the end of another Asia Pacific Currents for this week. Thank you to all the listeners for tuning in. Um, I do want to give one last plug to our fundraising appeal for this year because we really, as much as we know everybody's doing it tough, so too are we. Um, so we do need your financial support and financial assistance. Um, thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned to 3CR for the rest of the day and the rest of the weekend. I'm Giselle Hanna. And I'm Pierre Morrow. And we'll We'll be back next week.